Listener Production. KickPod acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast. The Yolukut Wollum clan of the Boonwurrung, who are part of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to the KickPod, your DM on the stuff that matters. One, two, three, Welcome to a special KickPod episode. Oh, it's very special, isn't it? It is. Have a holy jolly KickPod. Oh, because it's the best time of the year. It is the best time of the year. <laughs> and so because it is the best time of the year mm. and we're taking a break from the normal KickPod episodes, we're bringing you some highlights from some of our favourite episodes that you may have missed or if you didn't miss them, you may just want to re-listen because they are golden nuggets. Oh, absolutely. And we're going to be revisiting some of the wonderful words of wisdom from some of the strongest female guests we have had and had the pleasure to speak to on the KickPod that will hopefully leave you feeling empowered and uplifted. So on today's episode, we have got three special highlights. You will hear today from Lisa Wilkinson, which is one of my favorite episodes we have ever recorded. Mm. And Lisa gives some incredible advice. There was definitely tears in this one. I was going to say, you definitely wiped your dress on your face from a (laughs) snotty tear. I did. Lisa gives some great advice to anyone starting out in their career and how to find joy in your work and also the best way to approach something that seems overwhelming and too big to take on. And then we're also going to be highlighting a part of the lovely chat I had with M. Carey, who is also known as the girl that fell from the sky. Em explains what happened to her. She talks about shifting your mindset from negative to positive and explains why we shouldn't live in fear of taking risks and live life to its fullest, no matter what your situation or disability is. Em is such an inspiration. Oh, she sure is. And then the last but not least is the wonderful Sarah Davidson, who you may remember from the Kick Tour. She came on tour with us, was on the panel. She's also an entrepreneur. She calls herself a fun-trepreneur, I actually, love which we, we love. Sarah's amazing. And Sarah talks about confidence and what to do when you feel like you're lacking, which I feel like we I, often do. We often do. <laughs> exactly right. And how to combat imposter syndrome. So we hope you enjoy this episode. What do you think it is about you that's enabled you to be this ceiling breaker and just have so many firsts for women in your career? Um, I think it comes from a place of gratitude. To this day, I still pinch myself that I've been afforded opportunities and situations and challenges where I still test myself every day. I've always had the attitude of one day someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, you're having too much fun and it's time to go now. It's <laughs> like time I, to go. I, just, I live with that because I think it keeps you honest. Yeah. That feeling of don't take anything for granted because it can be taken away in a heartbeat. Your health can be taken away in a heartbeat. I mean, as it happened at Channel 9, that opportunity got taken away from me unexpectedly. And unless you you live with that feeling of gratitude that, and particularly as a journalist, I feel an incredible responsibility that you have this chance to speak to a lot of people on very powerful platforms. And I've never wanted to squander that opportunity. And I've always wanted to do something with it because there's this weird 
thing that kind of happened to me halfway through my career because I was so happy in magazines. You know, I just thought if anyone knew how much fun this was, everybody would want to do this. We'd have no nurses. We'd have no teachers. You know, we'd have none of the really important um, people to the running of this world. Everyone would want to be a journalist. So I, I always wanted to do something with this job that meant something and for me it's always been about the work about the stories that I can help tell about how I can empower other people and their important stories and I've also even though my role in this podcast is to talk a lot I've always been fascinated by other people's stories and I I heard something when I first got into journalism that I've carried with me ever since and that is if you're doing all the talking, you're not doing any of the listening. And so when I'm interviewing people, because I reckon everybody's got a story, and if you want to bring out the best in people, whether you're in front of a camera or, you know, people you meet in the everyday, your family, your friends, your work colleagues, if you're doing all the talking, you're not doing any of the listening. You're not getting to know those people that, that are important to you. So... All of those things, I think, have combined to give me a perspective on fame that have given me a survival instinct within it. I love that. And I think, I mean, you shared some real, what we like to call golden nuggets of advice just then, Lisa. But I would love to know, I mean, we've got quite a lot of young listeners as well who tune in. And for anyone starting out in their career, outside of what you just shared then, because they were awesome, is there anything else that you would say to them for, for anyone starting out? Um, you're going to spend a lot of your life working. So my best career advice is to find your passion. Like if you're going to do something, let's say roughly five days a week out of seven, try really hard if you can to find your passion because then it won't feel like work. And, you know, if it can be something that is stimulating and that you feel like there's a purpose to what you're doing, it does make it so much easier. And I know all the headlines that surround me, but it means that the pay packet matters less. Like I'm all about closing the gender pay gap, but if you can do something every day where you feel like at the end of the day, gee, it was good to be at work today and gee, I got something out of that, it's amazing how much lighter your load in getting through life can be. Oh, I would agree with that. I feel like we're going to be like that today. We're going to be like, gee, how lucky were we today? This is the best <laughs> after this conversation. Here's the other tip for anyone who wants to get into journalism. Do your homework. Make sure every time you approach any interview, any situation where you're hoping to impart and explain something to, to a wider audience, do your homework. So when you go in there... You're armed for every possible situation, but also with an openness to learning so you can learn for your audience as well. Oh, that's such good advice. And it ties so well into what I wanted to ask you around something you said on the No Filter podcast with Mia, which 
I highly recommend. I'm sure everyone listening to this has probably already consumed every piece of content from you ever, <laughs> like enough. we have. But um, what you said on that podcast about TV and, and work is to approach every day like it is your last. And I think that is such fantastic advice and I've clung on to that ever since you said it. But one thing I wanted to ask you about with that and something that I find I do myself is I do approach a lot of my work that way or everything that I can, but sometimes I feel that means that the pressure that I put on myself to be the best in everything that I do, and and sometimes you you can't because you don't have, you know, for an interview, for example, you could prepare for seven days or you could prepare for one, and I suppose you could always do more, and that's what I struggle with. So I wanted to ask you, how do you navigate that of, you know, treating every day like it's your last opportunity to be on TV or whatever it might be, but then not put so much pressure on yourself that you become a critic of, of who you are? Yeah, that's that's a big question, and there's about five different ways I can answer that, but... <laughs> I've always approached, like if I was to look back over my life, if I'd been like that 19-year-old receptionist and somebody had said to me, so these are the jobs that you're going to have across your life, these are the situations you're going to find yourself in, what do you think about that? I would say I'm going back to bed now. (laughs) I don't want to do all of those things because that terrifies me. So what I've always done particularly in situations where I feel a lot of pressure and that happens most days I always approach everything in life my personal life my professional life anything that feels like a challenge I do everything in bite-sized chunks for example the writing of my book I never plan to write my autobiography I'm married to the best-selling non-fiction author in the country. I see how hard he works, but more annoyingly than that, I see how easily he puts down on the page the most beautiful prose. And I'm a great editor, I know that, and I can always tell a writer once they've written something for me, if it needs a tweak, exactly how I need the tweak done. But the actual writing has always terrified me. And the biggest job I ever had in putting words down on a page was being asked to do the Andrew Ollie media lecture back in 2013. I was only the second female journalist in the country in 16 years to be asked to do that lecture. And the one who'd done it 16 years before me was Yana Bent. Like, hey, no pressure. And I had to write 6,000 words and stand up on a stage and deliver that to the most critical audience a journalist can ever stand in front of, and that is hundreds and hundreds of other journalists. So I spent six months writing that. I got up on that stage, terrified as I was, and I delivered those words. And the best thing about being asked to do the Andrew Wally Media Lecture is knowing that once you've done it, you will never be asked to do it again. (laughs) Uh, But the problem was I was then approached by publishers who'd heard the speech wanting me to write my autobiography. And I didn't know how I was going to do it, but it was one of those challenges where I thought, I just, I can't say no to this. It's like I will feel like a loser if I'm too scared to not write this. And I just thought all I can do 
is just start writing down a few anecdotes. And so I thought, I'll write about that time that I put that completely unknown 15-year-old corkscrew-curled redhead aspiring actor called Nicole Kidman on the cover of Dolly. And then I should write about how awful it was to be bullied at high school and how much I wanted to just disappear between the cracks. And then I'll write about what it felt like finding that three-line ad in the women and girls employment section and, and what it was like when I got the job at the age of 21 and the pressure I felt. And then I'll write about the heartbreak of losing my beautiful guiding star, my dad, to cancer three weeks after he was diagnosed. Um, I had to write about having three miscarriages. If I was going to talk about the joy of motherhood, I also had to talk about the heartbreak of motherhood as well. And I had to talk about what it felt like getting a phone call, standing in aisle six of Woolies holding a can of tuna and being told that I'd just been sacked from the Today Show. So there was just this enormous list of anecdotes that I thought, I can't write a book, but I can just write each of those anecdotes. So I just kept writing. And while it took me six months to write 6,000 words for the Andrew Ollie lecture, I got to the end of the writing and I'd written 180 6,000 words. (laughs) Who knew I could talk so much? Well, that was Lisa Wilkinson there giving some amazing advice. If you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find a link to it in our show notes. The next person you'll be hearing from is when I spoke to M. Carey about her skydiving accident and how it shifted her mindset. I've heard you once before describe yourself as your past self before the accident as not a positive person. I want to ask you why why you would like, I suppose, refer to yourself, your prior self to that. And also once you started your recovery process, I'm sure there was quite a lot of, it was a roller coaster of emotions, I'm sure, for, for a long t- period of time. And when was it throughout your recovery where you actually truly felt happy and grateful for life and could look at the experience. I mean, not in a positive light because obviously it's a it's an accident you wouldn't wish upon someone, but you actually could reflect and move on, move forward positively. When was that point? Yeah, so I think I know I've I've referred to myself as not being a positive person beforehand, but when I think about it, I think I was just really young average. and didn't, you know, just average, but I just hadn't yeah. really been through anything yet. So I didn't yeah. have any resilience. I didn't really have any purpose yet. So I was just, I was just going to a job I didn't like every day. I just didn't have any spark about me. I think that's mainly what I mean. And I, yeah, like the biggest thing that I'd been through at that point was my parents getting a divorce. So like, I didn't, I just didn't know that I was capable of handling something bigger. So that was my immediate worry when it first happened I just thought there's no way like other people get through things but not me like I'm not capable of this and I know a lot of people feel that way when they're faced with a situation or the fear of a situation happening and it's it's cheesy but it's true like we don't know what we're capable of until we're in that situation and we're forced to do it and so for the first few days in hospital I was definitely just devastated in shock trying to wrap my head around this new reality that I was in, going from being on holidays to suddenly being in a hospital. And it was a few days later, it happened honestly relatively quickly that my mindset switched. I just woke up one morning and I was like, 
okay, there's, there's nothing I can do to change what's happened. There's absolutely nothing I can do. It's happened and I'm going to have to live with it for the rest of my life, regardless of whether or not I get better, like this has happened. So I can either, you know, be paralyzed and let it ruin me, or I can be paralyzed and try to create a meaningful, exciting life regardless. And the main thing that helped was just thinking about when I was falling, as I said, it kind of time froze. And I had so much time to think about like, oh my God, I don't want to die yet. Like I, I have so much left that I want to do and I'm not like, I'm so young, I'm not ready for this yet. And so being given the chance to survive, I still had that appreciation for being alive. And I think the fact that even though it was traumatic that I was awake and I wasn't knocked unconscious, I think it really did help that I was awake for the moment of thinking, oh, I might die because it just, yeah, it really changed the way I think from that moment forward. I was like, I am so, so lucky. And yes, this is hard, but I'm so lucky that I get to still be here and be alive. Oh, and yeah, it's it's that thing. You've said it before. It was like you were alive before, but you weren't living. And Mm -hmm. I just thought that was just such a strong comment because it's really incredible to see the way that you live every day and the the energy that you have and everything it truly is like you're you're alive you're a very alive human being and I know that there would be so many people I mean myself included there is some days where I just like cannot fathom having that mindset and and I know that it's 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 really up to me but you know for those who might not have had this life-changing experience like you have but do want to shift their overall mindset like what would you say to them? Yeah. Well, first of all, don't get me wrong. I definitely have days where I not (laughs) so like so excited for everything. (laughs) Like I definitely have down days as well. But I think the main thing that helped me and that anyone can apply to their own life is just shifting the focus off what you've lost or what you don't have onto what you do have or what you've gained from a negative situation. So for me in those first few days in hospital, I just remember feeling like I've lost my body, I've lost all my physical abilities, I'd lost my boyfriend as well, he broke up with me in that same time and I'd lost, like I just lost my identity, I just had no idea who I was anymore and so it just felt so heavy and then on that day in hospital where my perspective changed, I was like, okay, but what do I still have? Like I've lost my legs but I still can use my arms, I can still use my hands and that's when I started drawing because I was just so excited to do something with my hands and then I even thought like is there somehow anything that I've gained from this situation and when I looked on it I realized I'd gained that massive appreciation for life and I'd also gained like a sounds (laughs) really cheesy but like the knowledge that I for some reason survived something that you shouldn't be able to survive and I just felt like there should be some bigger purpose to that. So yeah, in anyone's own life, I guess it's just, yeah, sometimes it can be hard to do when you're in the middle of something really hard, but thinking about what you still have or what you've gained from a situation is, yeah, is the simplest way to switch your perspective. Have you ever since the accident struggled with fear in in any way because of what happened or are you, you know, you've got this new lease of life and you just want to keep living it to the fullest, you're not going to let fear get in the way? Um, yeah, it's weird. Yes and no. So in a lot of ways, I've become a lot more aware of the fragility of life and our bodies. 
So I'm a lot more cautious and like every time I get in the car, I'm like, will this be the last time I can move my toes? Like I think about things that I never used to think about. And I love going out on the jet ski. I love skateboarding. I love doing things that I guess have an element of danger to it. And before I do any of those things, there is always a hint of nervousness that I don't think I would have felt before. But on the other hand, I've learned that there's the things that happen to us often aren't the things that we fear anyway. For example, when I was in hospital, the lady who was in the bed next to me broke her back from a tree landing on her house in the middle of the night. Like something you can't, something you can't even plan for. Mm. And so I think if we're to fear, fearing something is like you're experiencing the bad thing twice. First in your mind when you're imagining the future. And then secondly, if it is to actually happen, then you experience that again. So I've tried really hard. I've made like a very deliberate conscious decision to not let my fear stop me from doing things, especially because, as I said, a lot of the things that I like doing the most are a little bit dangerous. And I don't I don't really know how I push through that, but I think it's important to I, that I do because, I, as I said before, I was so grateful to survive that I don't want to use this second chance to just, you know, lock myself in my house and try to bubble wrap myself and keep myself safe because that's not going to be a life well lived for me. We absolutely loved listening to Em's story and her outlook on life and took so much from that chat. So make sure you check out the show notes for the full episode. Next up is a highlight from our chat with Sarah Davidson, who gave some great advice about how to help ourselves when we need a confidence boost. One thing like being on the panel with us, you'll know that we speak about confidence, not only on the panel when we go through the kick tour, but we also speak about it a lot. It's something that comes up a lot within the community, which is totally fair because I think we all know confidence can ebb and flow. And it's something that a lot of the time we find ourselves searching for in different capacities in different areas of life. So I would love to know what you do personally to help with your own confidence when you feel like you're lacking. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's probably among women particularly, but really anyone, the most consistent challenge that we all share. Mm -hmm. Like there aren't really that many people who haven't at some point grappled with, am I worthy? Do I deserve to be here? It's just like imposter syndrome is so rife. And I think the biggest misconception is that the more successful you get or the more goals that you achieve, the more it will fade away. Mm -hmm. I think that was probably in my relationship with confidence anyway. I thought as I got more qualified in whatever area, it would get easier. I would get more confident and I wouldn't have that crippling like, oh my God, do I deserve to be here? And But the biggest thing I've learned with self-doubt and imposter syndrome and those feelings of a lack of worthiness is I used to think it would go away. I thought the aim was for it to fade away. And actually I've learned now to embrace the fact that it's a good sign. You don't want it to, to cripple you and topple you and to move away from a dream because you don't feel like you could do it. Mm-hmm. But I don't ever want it to go away. I think self-doubt is a sign you're doing something scary, Mm. that you're doing something new, that you're stepping outside of your comfort zone. And, you know, I feel like the more I speak to people who seem like they've got it all together, they're they're at the top of the game, they all still have that self-doubt because they're invested. If I didn't have self-doubt, I think, like if I wasn't nervous before this, I think Mm. I don't care enough about doing a good job. The difference is seeing it as like a reflex, like the same as if you bump your elbow on the table, like you're going to get that like weird jolt of, (laughs) oh my God, I'm nervous. Um, But it's just to learn to push it aside. And I think the thing about 
humans that makes us different to every other mammal is that we can have thoughts and we can think about those thoughts. It's called metacognition. We can have a thought and then evaluate that thought and go, oh, that's actually not a useful one or that's not true or I shouldn't listen to that. So my strategy really now is I have the reflex of, oh, shit, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm going to fail. And then I think, okay, that's because this is new. That's because this is scary, but that's not really useful and it's probably not true either. So just push it to the side. And sometimes I can do that alone. I can have that dialogue. I talk to myself a lot, so I can usually talk myself around. (laughs) If I can't, you phone a friend. You phone someone else who, you know, believes in your abilities, has seen you do it before, who's going to be your hype girl or your hype guy and get them to help you break that circuit of you've done this before, this is just a normal sign. It's a normal reaction to something new. And um, yeah, it's a, it's confidence is really, it's ebbs and flows. It's really difficult, but I mm. think you can build strategies that help you through those harder moments. Totally. And I think I love that in those strategies that you mentioned both going internally and externally, because I feel like we've definitely mentioned before that it's like really important that you can work through stuff yourself and, and work on that yourself. But I think also it's it's just life that sometimes you need a little bit of external help or support from those around you who you feel comfortable with to perk you back up. I think mm. it's it's okay to have to need to reach out and to not always be okay like to do it by yourself. Yeah, totally. And I think the other thing that's really important, particularly in this day and age where our environment isn't just our physical environment, we're consuming so much information and mm. we've got triggers all the time. It's also knowing your triggers for confidence because mm. we all have certain things that will make us feel better and make us feel worse. And it's like a, you know, a scab. Sometimes I feel like you know something's going to make you feel crap, but you keep picking at it anyway because you're like, <laughs> oh, yeah. That's me. <laughs> and you just end up in this black hole of like, who am I? Oh, my God. And if you're not careful about really sort of blocking out those triggers before they hit you, mm-hmm. then you can end up like, you know, losing your productivity, losing your motivation and losing your confidence. So for things like during our wedding, for example, I knew that my comparison in terms of body image, in terms of the dress I chose, in terms of all the choices that I made, I was going to be really vulnerable about wedding specific content. So I had to mute everything for the Mm. couple of months before our wedding so that it wouldn't, you know, they say comparison is the thief of joy. So that my confidence in my choices and in our special day wasn't going to be ruined. Mm. But then the minute after we got married, I could follow Vogue Brides and like not not care about that content. So I feel like be, pay really careful attention to your triggers, to the Mm. people that make you feel good, to the people who maybe don't make you feel good and same with the content around you. Or even when you have your period, Mm. I know that I'm more vulnerable about Mm. certain things like skin or bloating or, you know, know what's going to make you feel good and bad in certain times of your life. And having those strategies in place is also really important. I I love how you speak about it as it's not you don't have to fix self-doubt because I think that's something that, I mean, probably a lot of people have made a lot of money from saying like, this is how you fix self-doubt. But you're right. It shows that you care. And I'm exactly the same if I'm doing public speaking or whatever it might be. If I'm not nervous, like it generally, I'm like, can the nerves come? Because it means that I, I, it's like it means you care and you really care about it. And sometimes I'm you want to appreciate every single like mm. opportunity that you get and nerves are almost an indicator of that, that, you know, you're pushing totally. yourself out of the comfort, your comfort zone, you're doing something different. But I really love that you speak about it as like, it's always going to be there. You have to find ways to manage it because if you don't find ways to manage it, it, yeah. it can cripple you and that can hold you back from, you know, what we are capable of, which we never, ever, ever want to happen. Mm. But it's just being okay and open with the fact that it does exist and that's normal for so many people. Totally. And I think another thing as well is that when you're younger, 
you spend so much of your life trying to suppress the things that make you different, maybe even a little bit quirky, mm. maybe even a little bit weird in my case. And I, I remember like spending so much of my life, confidence for me meant being like everyone else. Like the more I could assimilate, the more being I could in. look and talk and dress like everyone else and stand out less, the more I felt confident because I was like, oh, no one's looking at me. Like it's fine. I'm doing everything everyone else is doing. And that's such a shame. It's such a shame that we suppress those things about us because the older you get, the more you realize actually people who are confident and owning the things about them that are different are the coolest people. They're the so people true. who make you feel more confident in you. And you guys know I have kind of a, a, an interesting cultural background in that I was born in South Korea and then adopted. So I've always had this interesting, you know, like ethnicity versus nationality versus, and even that, I spent so much of my younger years like denying that I was Asian. I mean, it's so obvious to everyone else except me. Like, because I was like, I don't want to be different. I don't want to even talk about this story. I felt so, not embarrassed, but just awkward because it was so unusual. So I just, you know, when you just kind of like, avoid talking about something at all costs because you're like, this is such a confidence trigger point for me. So I would just ignore it completely. Now, the more I talk about these things and the more I embrace the parts of me that are different and talk about having no boobs and talk about having, you know, different eyelids and that kind of thing, you realize that's what makes you special. And confidence comes from embracing those things, I think, rather than pushing them away. It's so true. When you see people just living their life yeah, being and them. just because even I mean we, we were speaking about Abby Chatfield before we started and I when I, I I love following her and looking at what she does and I often speak to Dalton about it and, and I'll be like oh my god look what she posted like this is amazing and he's like <laughs> oh yeah okay and I'm like no but she's just own like owning us, owning yeah. who she is and it doesn't she's not applying by this like rule book that we mm. think that we have to especially being in like the public eye and everything that we have to abide by. Mm. And it's just to see people, as, as you said, like just exuberating confidence. And, and maybe internally she doesn't I was feel that say, way. You know? I it probably doesn't. Asked her, she absolutely would still have all of these same feelings. But it is so, yeah. I like look at what she's doing. I'm like, yes. She projects herself. Yes. Yeah, like that just makes her. me feel so, ins- like it, it, I, yeah, imp- exactly right. Yeah. But so interesting you said that, Steph, because I feel like a big part of it is actually fake it till you make it. Like totally. that's a cliche for a reason because it works yeah. because, you know, you guys, when you turn up in a meeting and you don't feel confident, no one else would know that. And that's kind of the point. Like that's a really good strategy. If you just manifest that you're feeling confident, even changing the tone of your voice, mm. if you turn up to a meeting and you're kind of like, oh, I'm pitching this thing, but it's not very good. You're going to hear yourself, you know, like I feel like you manifest how you're feeling and then that kind of just becomes this vicious cycle. But if you present as confident, you take up more space, you don't sort of, even in your posture, Posture. you don't shrink away, then you sort of start to believe that it's like this self-fulfilling thing. So you can set the tone before you even turn up that I will appear confident and then you start to believe it and then especially in speaking Mm. the nerves fade in like the first five minutes but if you start nervous it's really hard to shake it so I kind of start the loudest have a big joke own it I'll often mention that I'm nervous at the beginning yeah yeah I always at the kick tour I'm always like if anyone else needs to do a nervous (laughs) week because I just did one and it just puts you at ease because you're like I'm not pretending that you know I don't have nerves but I'm also gonna you know push through them it's yeah it's a real head game Thank you so much for listening, everyone. If you ever want to get involved in our podcast, you can send a voice memo or DNM to podcast at keepitcleaner.com.au. You can also check us out on socials at keepitcleaner.com. 
at laura.henshaw, at Steph Smith or at Kik, that's K-I-C, on TikTok. If you haven't had enough of us, you can find out more about the Kik app on keepitcleaner.com. Bye. Bye. Bye.